If we haven't met, my name is Michael. I'm one of the clergy here at Servants. And this might be an unpopular opinion, but I wake up more excited on Easter morning than I do on Christmas. For me on Easter, there's always a palpable sense of new hope, of possibility, of light that's dawning. And that is exactly what we see in our gospel passage here. John opens his resurrection account with Mary Magdalene going to the tomb to finish the burial preposition, not prepositions, I don't think grammar was involved, the burial preparations in early morning while it was still dark. And that's an important detail, while it was still dark. You see, John is very careful with his language. And all throughout this gospel, he's been using the language of darkness and light very specifically. When he started the whole thing, he said how Jesus was a light that shined in the darkness. And he records Jesus himself later saying that he is the light of the world. But he also talks about darkness. He records how Jesus talked about how night was coming which he referred to his coming death. And starkly, when Judas goes out to betray Jesus, John just said, and it was night. This language of light and dark is very important. But here on the first Easter morning, light is starting to dawn. And that is my hope for us this morning, that the light of Easter morning dawns on us in a new way. For some of us, that light may be dawning on the truth of the resurrection. What if this thing actually happened? For others, the breaking light may be illuminating for the first time the goodness of God. Is this God someone I can trust? And for others, we still might see some new facet of God's beauty and love that previously had been obscured by the shadows. Wherever we're coming from, I pray that God's light will dawn on our hearts in a new way this morning as we have a moment to contemplate the light of Easter. In our passage this morning, we see the light of Easter starting to illuminate for the first Christians and for us what exactly happened and what it meant. What happened and what it meant. So first, we see a light is beginning to dawn on Mary and Peter and John in terms of what exactly happened that morning. And this kind of thing, the, the resurrection, is something that can get spiritualized away by modern theologians or dismissed by sophisticated people of today who have just outgrown religious and magical thinking. But the issue is Christianity simply does not work without the resurrection. The Bible often speaks in metaphor and in poetic language, but this is not one of those times. The resurrection is a non-negotiable for our faith, so much so that the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says that if the resurrection is not true, our faith is in vain, we are still in our sins. We are misrepresenting God. We're lying about what God is actually like. And we of all people in the world are to be pitied because we're living for nothing. That the resurrection happened matters. 
And at the beginning of this chapter, the meaning of the light of Easter is starting to dawn on Mary and, and Peter and John. I don't want to spend too much time belaboring the historicity of Easter, but if you are trying to wrestle with if this happened or not, I want you to consider two quick points. First, the disciples weren't credulous, which is to say, we like to think that people from olden days were more simple and are more gullible, that, oh, they'd believe anything. C.S. Lewis refers to this as chronological snobbery, but more importantly, if you look at this chapter, that's not what happened. When Mary and Peter and John saw or heard that the body was gone, they had the first response that you and I would have. Who took it? Where'd it go? Someone had to have moved it. Dead bodies don't just walk away. They didn't just believe on blind faith. And that's really important. You see, Celsus is this guy, no relation to Celsius, at least I don't think. He is a, a philosopher in the second century who was an early and strident opponent of Christianity. And he made fun of Christians saying that one of their favorite phrases is, do not examine, just believe. He's saying those Christians just have blind faith. They don't ask any real questions, which is unfortunately a criticism that is still true of some Christians today. But if you look at the first Christians, that's not what happened. If you look at the first 18 verses of this chapter, you can go and count for yourself. How many times does John use words for sight, that they went and saw for themselves exactly what happened? I noticed that none of y'all took your Bibles out. I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. The answer is eight. Oh, Myra did and Wanda did. Thank you. The answer is eight. Eight times he refers to them actually seeing for themselves that the linen cloths did not, were not arranged in a way that you'd expect if someone just stole the body or quickly did away with it. It not only says they saw, but they stooped in and entered into their tomb themselves. This is not the stuff of blind faith. The disciples were not a credulous bunch. Mary was not credulous, but secondly, Mary also was not credible. That doesn't sound like a good thing if I'm trying to say the resurrection is credible, but just bear me out. Mary was the first witness along with other women, and John, he only says Mary, but you might notice that she said we. There were other women who were with her. And that would have been a big problem. If you are trying to prove something, you want to have good sources. That's why in school they teach you not to cite Wikipedia or some random blog online in your research paper. It's why in court lawyers try to undermine and disqualifying opposing witnesses. And it's why Mary's case would not have held up in a court in Jesus' day. Josephus was a historian uh, on Jesus' time. He's one of the uh, foremost experts we have on what life was like back then. He was an ancient historian who lived not long after the life of Jesus. And when describing the legal practices of that time, this is what he wrote. He said, but not let a single witness be credited, but three or two at the least, 
and those such whose testimony is confirmed by their lives. Okay, sounds good. We would probably want that too, right? And then he goes on immediately after that to say, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the, of the levity and boldness of their sex. Yikes. <laughs> uh, I mentioned Celsus earlier, and he didn't only think that Christians were naive, he also argued against how highly they regarded women. And when he talked about Mary Magdalene, he said that she would not have been a, a, a credible witness. This is what, how he described her, and I quote, that she was a hysterical woman who was deluded by sorcery and so addled by grief that she hallucinated him risen from the dead by a sort of wishful thinking. Mary would not have been a credible witness of the resurrection. Now, if you're trying to start a fraudulent healthcare tech company today, you would, which I hope you're not, this isn't supposed to be advice time, you wouldn't hire Elizabeth Holmes, the, the former leader of Theranos, to be the CEO. If you are going to start a cryptocurrency exchange right now, you wouldn't hire Sam Bankman-Fried to be its spokesperson. If you were to start a Ponzi scheme, you wouldn't get Bernie Madoff to be the face of your operation. Just like if you were trying to start a fraudulent religious movement in Jesus' day, you wouldn't have Mary be one of your most important witnesses. John didn't record it because they were trying to pull some fraud. He recorded it because that's how it actually happened. And there are more compelling reasons than just these. But these are just a few I want to highlight from our passage this morning. And if you have more questions or are trying to work through, hey, did this actually happen? Father James or myself would be happy to hear you out. And if you are trying to work things out, that's great. It means you're just like the disciples in this passage who are trying to sort out what they saw in the light of that first Easter morning. The dawning light of Easter, it revealed an empty tomb. But it's important for us not to consider just what happened, but what it meant. And maybe as the eyes of your heart are starting to adjust to the Easter sun, you aren't like the disciples at the beginning of this passage. You're like the disciples in the middle of this passage. They're starting to come to grips with the fact that the resurrection happened, but they don't know what it means. It's one thing to see the empty tomb in the light of Easter morning. It's something completely different to see your life in light of the empty tomb. And I think we see some of that meaning in the second half of our gospel. And this, when we talk about the meaning of Easter, the meaning of the resurrection, that's when we get to its real beauty. Bear with me here, but I think so beautiful is the light of Easter, it's like the famous line from A Few Good Men, when he says, you can't handle the truth. And then right after that, Jack Nicholson's character says, deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall. What he's saying is Tom Cruise's character doesn't want to accept that people like him exist and are, are necessary, 
but he needs them. And in the opposite way, in like a good and beautiful way, not in a creepy, evil way, that's what it's like, I think, with Easter. That even if we don't believe it in the first place, we want to. We want to believe what it means. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean a lot of things. When I originally was drafting this, I was so excited about different parts of this passage, and I was going to talk about how the light of Easter reveals the ending that we all want, the vindication that we all crave, and the acceptance that we all need. Sounds great, right? But as I was writing it out, I realized it was going to take well over an hour to talk about all those things, and seeing how this is not a Baptist church, it's an Anglican church, I decided to cut it down to just one. Now, perhaps our, brother, our Anglican brothers and sisters in Africa might be okay with longer services. That's the impression I got from a friend of mine at seminary. But we are here in Gainesville, so we'll just stick with how the light of Easter reveals the ending that we all want, with the caveat that Easter is way more beautiful than just this one thing. The light of Easter reveals the ending that we all want. No one wants the story of their life to end in tragedy. But when we see Mary Magdalene at the beginning of this passage, her life has taken a tragic turn. She's just gone through profound trauma. She has watched with her own eyes one of her closest friends get chewed up and spit out by the legal system. She watched the person she devoted years of her life to following suffer a violent and humiliating death. It's hard for us to comprehend just how utterly demeaning crucifixion was. It wasn't even mentioned in polite society back then. And now she's left trying to pick up the pieces. She's going through the unimaginable, getting up the next day after witnessing an unspeakable evil. And I hope you cannot relate to her at all. But the truth about living in this world is that more than a few of us have either walked through hardship like this personally or love someone who has. Or frighteningly, it could happen to one of us one day as well. And when we are found in these moments of senselessness, what do we want? We want someone to call a spade a spade. I recently met someone who had experienced evil firsthand, the kind of stuff that makes national news. And she said that one of the most helpful things for her in the aftermath of what she went through was when people acknowledged the wrongness of what happened. In the wake of our tragedy, we want someone to say, that was not right. We want people to say, that was evil. We want people to say, that is not okay. That's not how it's supposed to be. We want assurance that our grief and our pain is justified. And more than that, we want assurance that things will be okay. And this is tricky because while we want comfort, we don't want cliches. Dear Evan Hansen won the Tony for Best Musical in 2017. It has a song called You Will Be Found, in which the high school-aged protagonist is encouraging his peers to reach out to others in the midst of their despair and shame and loneliness. It has a really 
upbeat message. And with infectious syncopation, he sings, I'm not going to do it for you because you'd all walk out. But just imagine someone with a really good voice singing this in a catchy tune with, like, at one point, a harmony in the background, too. <laughs> Even when the dark comes crashing through, when you need a friend to carry you, and when you're broken on the ground, you will be found. It's a moving depiction of a cultural refrain that we have that assures us, even in the midst of our misery, we'll be okay, and just as critically, we won't be alone in our suffering. We want to know that we're okay, and we want to know that we don't have to go through hardship alone. But the problem is, oftentimes, the best of our comforting assurances are disconnected from reality. We don't want to be alone in our grief, but we know so many people do suffer alone. And the song I just shared from Dear Evan Hansen, it's deeply ironic. Because if you watch the musical or listen to the soundtrack, they made a movie about it too, which I haven't seen, so I don't know if it's good or not. But if you watch it, you know that Evan Hansen is assuring everyone they'll be found in the midst of their desolation. But in the midst of the plot, he's lying because he himself is utterly alone in a lie that he is going through and his whole life is a con and he doesn't want to invite people in because he doesn't want to be found out. The very words that he is singing, he doesn't believe in that moment. He's utterly alone in his pain, hiding behind a facade. The words he sings sounds great, but he doesn't believe them because there is no guarantee that he will be found. We want to know the wrongs we've suffered are really wrong. It's helpful and meaningful when a friend assures you that what happened was wrong. But it's especially helpful and meaningful when society echoes that sentiment by carrying out justice. But sometimes the bad guy gets away with it. One of my favorite movies is a real downer called Calvary. And in it, there's a guy who works in finance who blithely shares about how he won't face any repercussions for profiting off the financial ruin of millions. And this is what he says. They'd have to charge half of the financiers in Ireland and half of the bank managers with them and troop into government then and charge them as well. And we all know full well that's not going to happen. Nope, there will be no punishing forthcoming for a man such as myself. There never is. That's an example from a fictional movie but we all know that it happens in real life. Sometimes evil gets let off the hook. And we want assurances that everything will be okay. But sometimes, despite our sincerest insistence upon silver linings, there is no hope on the horizon. A sports podcaster I really like lives in Nashville. And his kids go to an elementary school just down the street from Covenant. And as you can expect, he was distraught by the evil that befell his community. What unnerved him most was not being able to provide the safety to his kids that he felt he should as a parent when he had to send his kids back to school the very next day. And on his podcast, he, he shared this. Uh, 
He said, I cannot create psychological security because I cannot lie to my child. And there's not even a good lie. I would challenge you to lie to a child to get them out of this because there is no lie you can't equip them with that one day life in America cannot break. He wanted for himself and for his kids to say that everything will be okay. But he knew that if you did say that, those would be hollow words that couldn't guarantee anything. In the face of evil and tragedy, we want justice, we want assurance, we don't want to be alone in our suffering. But in the light of the empty tomb, those desires are not just empty hopes. The light of Easter reveals the ending that we all want. When we pick up with Mary here in verse 11, she's crying alone, grieving the worst event of her whole life. Or so it seems. But she isn't actually suffering alone. As one commentator put it, like other sorrowful disciples since, she was not alone. Angels were just in front of her and the Lord was just behind her. In our moments of deepest desolation, if we are in Christ, we are never alone. As the psalmist puts it, God draws near to the brokenhearted and his tear, our tears are so precious to him that he counts and stores every one up in his bottle. The psalmist says that in Psalm 34 and 56, respectively. And so here in the light of Easter, though it may seem otherwise at times, we can be guaranteed that we are never left alone in our sorrow. How is the light of Easter helping you see that God is with you in your sadness? Moreover, in our moments of deepest desolation, we know that God will not let evil off the hook. When we are suffering, especially when we are suffering injustice, we rage at the cause of our grief, and we might not trust people who aren't at least somewhat grieved by our grief. Now, as a culture, we aren't big on wrath, but we long for outrage in the face of evil. And that is what God's wrath is. But God's wrath, his outrage, is not an empty, self-serving rage. It's him setting things right. And for things to be self, to set right, whatever the cost, whatever the, to fix the injury, to fix what was wrong, must be proportionate to the injury that happened. It must be proportionate to the crime. So on the cross, we see Jesus, the spirit-filled son of the father, suffering the full weight of evil. On the cross, we see Jesus willingly take on himself and bear in his body and soul all the evils and tragedy of the world. When we see Jesus on the cross, we see how seriously God takes evil. Yes, Bad, terrible things continue to happen in this world. But if we look at the cross, we won't be able to understand why exactly those bad things happened, but we can know this. It is not because God doesn't care. 
It's not because he isn't opposed to evil. It's not because he looks the other way. Jesus stared down evil in the face, every evil in human history, and took them upon himself. He swallowed them up so they would not have to swallow us. And so, as Easter illumines the cross, it helps us to see how God takes evil seriously. And yet when we see the empty tomb of Easter morning, we know that, as the Apostle John put it, the darkness has not overcome the light. The the resurrection helps us to see that, as John Stott says, what looks like and indeed was the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Christ endured every evil and overcame it in order to rescue us from sin and death. And his resurrection assures us that though we will endure tragedies in our life, our story in the end, even if we only get glimpses of it in this life, does not end in tragedy. Jesus suffered death but it ended in resurrection. And if we're in Christ, that is true of us. Our deepest deaths, our deepest pains will not have the last word. Is that not the ending that all of us want? And isn't that what we see with Mary in this passage? At the beginning of this second half of it, she's distraught. But soon the cause for her greatest fear becomes her greatest joy. Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. And she can't help but embrace him with joy. Now don't get me wrong, this does not mean that Mary will never have trouble again. Though the devil has been defeated, he has not conceded defeat. But it does mean that whatever trouble Mary faces, however deep they may be, they can never make her life an irrevocable tragedy. As Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And this does not mean that our traumas in this life are trivial. They're real, just like evil is real, just like your pain is not some illusion you have to transcend. But it does mean that if Easter is true, And if the tomb is in fact empty, your story does not end in tears. It ends in the brightness of day without a shadow in sight with Jesus himself who wept with you your whole life wiping away your every tears. As Revelation 21 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And this is where it gets good, y'all. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. (laughs) Nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so I ask you, is that not the ending that we all want? Is that not what we want in our lives? And so can you see the beauty? Can you see the truth? The stone was not rolled away for Jesus. Later in this chapter, he walks through a locked door. It's rolled away for us so we can go in and see what happened, so we can see with our own eyes. Is this not the beauty that we want for our stories? That Jesus came to deliver us not only from the evil out there, but from the evil that's in here, the ways in which we partake with evil in ways that we would not like to admit and that he rescues us just like he rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians, not because of anything we do, but because of his completed work. Is that not what we want? And because, as Colossians says, our life is hidden with Christ in God, nothing can take that away. Is that not the ending that we all want? I hope the light of Easter this morning has dawned on us afresh in some new way. But if it has, it means our eyes are going to have to adjust. We've all walked out of a movie theater when it's still daylight. Light is jarring at first when you're still used to the dark. Mary, Peter, and John all had to stoop to see what the Easter light had revealed. Each of us, whether the light of Easter is illumining the reality of the resurrection, the goodness of God, or some new facet of his love, we will all have to stoop in some way to take it in. And stooping can be uncomfortable. For some of us, stooping might mean giving up pretensions and prejudices about what is possible on this earth. For some of us, we might have to reckon with the reality that Christ came to overcome the evil out there as well as the evil in our own hearts, and that the line separating good and evil runs through not the good guys and the bad guys, but every human heart. For some of us, stooping might be letting ourselves hope again. And a quick word to those of us here at Servants. We've had a tough year as we've grieved the loss of Alex as our rector. And I don't think that was the result of evil. I think it'll be for the good of Alex. I think it'll be for the good of servants. I think it'll be for the good of our diocese. But evil often tries to twist and distort things that are good. And if the empty tomb is real, as we look upon it illumined by the Easter dawn, we can face the uncertainty of this transition with hope. We might not know what the future holds, but we know that in the end, in Christ, we will have the ending that we all want. Please pray with me. Lord, your word tells us um, that just as you said, let the light shine out of darkness, you you have shined in our own hearts with that light to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes now to see the ways 
that the Easter light is meeting us this morning and show us how we can trust in you as we learn to stoop and follow you. And may all of our days be redeemed by your victory. Amen.